Everybody doing all right this morning? Everybody uh, recovered from Easter? Right? All that good Easter candy that we talked about last week. Everybody good with that, right? Um, let me ask you a question as we get started today. How many of you have ever had difficulty falling asleep at night? Right? Anybody ever had trouble with that? Like, just problems getting to sleep? What, what do you do when you can't go to sleep at night? When insomnia strikes, what do you do? Play on your phone, which is probably counterproductive to the sleeping, right? What else? What do you, what do you do? What do you do to try to get to sleep? Listen to some music. Apparently nobody does anything else. What? Stop thinking. Yeah, easier said than done, right, Randy Brooks? Right, there are all kinds of things people do. They they drink warm milk. They lower the lights in the or, you know as they're getting ready for bed. If they've been having problems over the last few weeks, I don't know if you saw this, but in Apple's latest update um, on their phones, they now have a setting that you can turn on called night mode that reduces the light that's supposed to keep you up at night, and so it does that when the sun goes down, so you can go into sleep easier. Um, all these kind of things people have, but insomnia is not a new thing, and our approaches today are much more scientific than previous uh, generations' approaches. And I, I just thought this was interesting. We're going to be talking over the next few weeks about um, things that keep us up at night or things that disturb our peace. And, and this is some of the traditional ways people have tried to get over insomnia. First of all, people in England back years ago in the Victorian area used to put dormouse fat on their feet before they went to bed at night. Y'all know what a dormouse is? It's a mouse. Now, I don't know how you get the fat of a mouse, but you have to have one to start with, right? So anybody, I don't know if anybody wants to do that. In the Middle Ages, they thought if you drank, before you went to bed, if you drank a potion made from the gall of a castrated boar, it would help you out a little bit. Anybody ever want to try that? Uh, in different places around the world, this is not going over well. Y'all are just like grossed out, right? In different places all over the world, they, they think if you eat certain things before you go to bed, it, it helps. So, for instance, in parts of the United States, they think if you eat a raw onion before you go to bed, that helps. In France, they do fried lettuce. And in Japan, they actually give their kids sea slug entrails. So, you know, warm milk sounds like a pretty good option as it is. Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, who um, we mentioned last week, great... English author Charles Dickens used to uh, uh, have problems with insomnia in a major way, and he tried a combination of opium and alcohol, and it worked for like days is the problem, right? He was out for a while, and so he discovered, he said the secret to going to sleep at night, maybe y'all need to try this when you home, get your compass out, is if you face your bed where you're facing north, you sleep better at night. Now, none of those things work, right? I mean, all, all those things, none of them work. There are some things that work. In the first service, I said, what do you do when you can't go to sleep at night? And about halfway back on the left, a lady said, Tylenol PM. Like, that's what it is, right? Like, uh, go to bed. They, they, we have drugs now that help us with that. When I was growing up, I was about 8 to 10 years old. I had problems going to sleep at night. I've always been, still am, kind of a night owl. And so usually I stay up later than anybody else in the house. Um, that's just kind of where I am. I think sometimes better at that time, read, whatever. And so um, as a kid, it would drive my parents crazy because they like to go to bed. And I would be up till 11, 12, 1, just awake and couldn't go to sleep. You know, that kind of thing where you, the harder you try to go to sleep, the more awake you are. And so my mom and dad tried everything. I mean, they did the warm milk. They did the soothing uh, music. They did the turning different lights out across as time went on to make it feel like the sun's going down in the house. Um, uh, they they put the sermon uh, tapes on from the pastor like some of you might do when you're having trouble sleeping, right? They, well, no, they didn't do that. But we did all that. I remember in particular, like, time frame, they, they got me a stereo for my room, right? And they would put it on. In Memphis, there was this station called the River, and the River in Memphis was an easy listening station. And so they would put the easy listening station on in my room, and then they would tell me to lay down. And then it got to the point 
where my dad would come in and say, I will lay in here with you until you go to sleep and then I'll go back to my bed. The problem was dad had no problem going to sleep. Right. And dad, like uh, uh, several men, snored loudly and it did not help. I remember many nights laying there in the bed wide awake when and some of you will remember this used to happen. The national anthem started playing on the radio at midnight because the radio station was going off the air. And then it would just be static. Now, I have no idea what was so concerning to me at 8, 9, 10 years old that I could not get to sleep. And we all have experience as parents of kids coming to our room and there's something in my room. There's a monster under my bed. There's something that's preventing me from going to sleep. As we grow older, those things that can rob our peace become more significant and harder to deal with. And so you may be having difficulty in your life, sleeping at night or just with peace during the day. Those things become real issues, issues like guilt and shame and regrets, unfulfilled promises, broken relationships, worry about your future, financial instability, unfinished projects. And over the next few weeks, what we're going to do, the the time-honored tradition of how you get to sleep when you can't get to sleep at night is to lay in bed and count sheep, right? And so we're using this series to talk about kind of spiritual sheep counting, how we think about issues and the things that we do in our minds and in our lives and in our spiritual lives to help to overcome those things that disrupt our peace. And today I want to talk to you about the one thing that is necessary for all of us to face the fears that we may have in life. And it's one simple word, and it's the word courage. Now, I want to be real honest and upfront with you. Courage is not my strongest suit. I've struggled in my life with courage of, of how to say the exact right thing at the right time, even when I know the right thing to say at the right time. How to stand up for something I firmly believe, even though everything around me is kind of against what I firmly believe. How to speak boldly about those things. How to share Christ with people around me that need to know Christ. And it always bothers me that I don't have more courage than I do, especially when I meet believers who are so courageous. Now, I mentioned these guys over the last few weeks, but the Lord really just kind of convicted my heart when we were in Los Angeles. Jeff and I were meeting with all these pastors, and two pastors in particular with their courage. And the first one is a guy named Tommy. And Tommy is, uh, as I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, is pastoring a church in South Central Los Angeles. Now, they don't call it South Central Los Angeles anymore. They call it South Los Angeles because the name South Central had such a negative connotation to it. Tommy is a guy that grew up near that area, moved to Philadelphia, then moved back. And when Tommy was speaking to us about his church planting thing, I was just, it's just one of those moments when you're sitting there realizing that his reality, even though he's planting a church in the United States of America, is so different than my reality of pastoring a church in the United States of America. And Tommy is planning a church on streets that are literally overseen and run not by local law enforcement, but by local gang affiliation. And he's trying to reach people with the gospel that have been in gangs since they were children and have been a part of those initiation rites and those killings and those deals and all that happens in the midst of that. And he told the story about how he was meeting with a guy that had been a former, I, I can't remember which gang he had been a part of, but he, had, he was a part of a gang, had come out of that gang, and he was meeting with him to try to help him figure out how to forge a new life in the same community apart from the gangs that he had always known. They were meeting in a park in South Los Angeles, and he got there to meet with the guy, and the guy said, oh, by the way, just to let you know, hey, no big deal, kind of happens a lot, but this is a spot where they had a drive-by about 30 minutes ago. I was like, I've never met in a place where they said that, right? And he is like, oh, okay. And he meets with those people in that setting. I'm like, that's different. While we were there, another guy that we met, that our, our group met a couple of years ago is Aura. Just to hear his story again, I'd heard it before, but to hear it again about being arrested in Iran for smuggling Bibles, being interrogated and tortured, And told that if you don't give us the name of all of the leaders of the underground church in Iran that you know, we're going to to never let you see your wife again. 
We're going to torture your family. And to hear Aura just say, I, I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. Now I hear those stories and I'm like, I'm, I'm weak. Man, I, I was at McDonald's the other day and I was driving through and the, and the girl kind of said something. I thought, oh, I probably need to invite her to church or say something to her. And my foot hit the gas before the words came out of my mouth. I had a friend that was kind of in need and the Lord just kind of said, tell him about me. And I just didn't. It, we're in good company if you've ever struggled with courage. I mean, Peter kind of struggled with courage in the Bible. He didn't stand up for what he knew to be right. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my um, spiritual heroes, said that one of the greatest struggles of his life was courage. So the question that I deal with in my life is, so, so, so how do I get more courage? Do I just get more courage by being more courageous? I just gotta, I just gotta build it up inside of me. I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta do this. I gotta force myself to do it no matter what. I just gotta step out there and do it. Or where does courage come from? If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're gonna look at a story today, perhaps the most famous story of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at where courage comes from. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, um, you can get your smartphone out. And we've actually put the scripture like we did last week on fbcgoodlitzville.com and just backslash Goliath. Anybody know what story we're talking about today there? David and Goliath, right? One of the most famous of all time. If you do that, the whole scripture will come up. We're going to jump around in and out there. It's 54 verses, so we're not going to read all 54 verses um, today. We're going to look at kind of as we move through it. But if you, uh, it'll be there if you want to go this week and look at it anyway. You can bookmark it. It'll be there. What we're going to talk about today is where does courage come from? So we're going to be David and Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17. But here's the thing. Everybody thinks they know this story. And everybody thinks it's a good kid's story. But, but it's not a kid's story. There are elements of it that appeal to kids. And I remember being in children's church growing up, the flannel graphs back then they had. And I remember this story on flannel graph and thought, man, it's a cool story. But not all of the story made it to flannel graph. And we'll see parts that didn't make it to flannel graph. But this is a story I think everybody knows, and they use all the time. I mean, ESPN uses it all the time, right? This is David versus Goliath. This is the little guy versus the big guy. This is the, the, the one that doesn't have a chance against the one that is dominated. Bigger they are, the harder they fall, the bigger the upset is. Now, I, I was watching a game the other night. It was a regular season NBA game when they said that the Boston Celtics, one of the most storied franchises in history, was David to Golden State's Goliath. I was like, that's kind of minimalizing what's happening here, right? We think we're used to it. It's the little guy versus the big guy. But I want to suggest there are some deeper things here. Now let's look at it. Here's the story. We're just going to read the story, stop along the way, talk about some things, and then at the end I'm going to give you a couple of things to, to sum up. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. The first question you ask right off the bat, okay, who are the Philistines? Well, the Philistines are a group of people in the promised land that aren't supposed to be there. God specifically told the Israelites, I'm going to give you the promised land and I'm going to give you the land and you are to destroy everybody here and they won't be able to put up a fight. And the Israelites, when they entered the promised land, did not fulfill God's promises and they left the Philistines kind of there. And as they did, the Philistines grew in strength and importance. In fact, the Philistines um, were a major, the major threat to the Israelites in the promised land at this time during David's reign. Or before, actually, David's not king yet, but he's on his way. But they were the biggest threat for a couple of reasons. First of all, they were on the cutting edge of technology. This is called the Iron Age. This is when bronze and iron were starting to be used. The Philistines had bronze and iron. The Israelites did not. And so you'll see when Goliath comes out, he's dressed in metal uh from head to toe with the metal sword, and they had those advances, and the Israelites had javelins and spears and leather. And so it was not as technologically advanced. The Philistines had the three major cities on the trade routes, and so they were economic powers. Um, for instance, in like early Americas, like they had New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, all controlled by them. And so the Philistines were this imposing army who were stopping Israel from taking possession 
of what was rightfully Israel's in the first place. So the Philistines gathered for bottom. And so the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now we're going to stay here for just a second, just to let you know kind of what's going on. There were two mountains with a valley in between, and though people that have been there, I have not, say that it's about a half a mile to a mile wide valley. And so on either side, you've got these two encampments, the Philistines and the Israelites. And each day, there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath. And it says that his height was six cubits and a span. You, you know what that means, right? How many of you still measure your height in cubits? Anybody know how many cubits you are? Like, we don't do that, right? So how tall was Goliath? Well, there's dispute over that. He was either nine foot six. That, that's kind of tall, right? Or six foot nine. Now, here's the thing. Oh, if he's six foot nine, we know six foot nine people. Uh, here's what you have to understand. In the days of Israel, the average Jewish male, the average Israelite male was between four and a half and five feet tall. And David, if you remember, who's y'all know David's going to be in the story, right? This is David and Goliath, right? David was considered the runt of his family. So he's somewhere in the four and a half or less height. Now, if you are four and a half feet, is six foot nine tall? Yes, right? So we were in, we were in uh, West Tennessee for a couple of days this week. Kids were on spring break. We went and visited family there. And we're sitting in my brother-in-law's house about 4.30 on Monday afternoon. And he gets a text on his phone. And he goes, oh, man, I wish I could do that. I can't do that. And then just like this light goes off in his head. And he said, hey, would you want to go to the NBA game tonight? And I was like, ah. He said, I said, who is he? He said, it's the Grizzlies and the Spurs. I said, well, all right, that's the Spurs really good. Grizzlies, okay. You know, I, I, the, the FedEx Forum I've been to is a nice place to watch a game. I assumed it was in Memphis as I was going that night, not San Antonio. And he says, and they're pretty good seats. And I said, all right, we'll go. You know, I got convinced of the boys. They, I don't know if I want to go. You know, so we, we let's get in the car and we drive down and we get there. And I don't know whether you know this or not. But your pastor was on TV the other day. Did you know that? You could have seen it multiple times. In fact, I got a picture of me on TV. Here I am. You see me in there anywhere? Eli's in there too. All right. There it is. Right up there. All right. So that's me. And that's Eli and Luke and Cade. All right. Okay. You can't really tell. But that is us. All right. And to prove it, here's a picture from our seats. Okay. That's us. Now, when you're here, <laughs> these were not my brother-in-law seats. Uh, the first thing I asked him when I talked to him the next day was, whose seats are those? Because they have lots of money, all right? They, we were not among our kind of people here, right? So, so, um, we, so the, when you're here, you can see players up close, and it's just amazing to watch all of this. I mean, if you're an NBA guy or anything, or even a North Carolina fan with them in the championship, there's Vince Carter and... Um, you know, Boris Diaw from uh, um, Brazil and Danny Green and Jordan Farmar. But right here is a guy named Patty Mills, all right? And Patty Mills is a, a point guard on the team. And at one time he was standing, if you go to the next slide, this is the last one picture here. He was standing next to this guy, who I can't pronounce his name, but he's from Serbia, okay? And I looked out there and one guy's standing there, this guy's standing there, and Patty Mills standing next to him. And I said, I just thought to myself, man, that Patty Mills is short, like He's got to be shorter than me. And so I look up in the program and Patty Mills is six foot tall. Okay. This guy is seven foot three. Okay. And so as they're standing there, the perspective is the six foot tall guy looks short. Okay. So if Goliath was his size, seven foot three, and David is four foot six, is that a giant? Yes. All right. So just if you ever hear somebody go, well, you know, they've uh, researched and Goliath was probably only six foot nine. That's still really big. All right. Compared to a four and a half foot guy. All right. Back to the story. This is Goliath. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. That's not like a bunch of postcards put on there. That's like, you know, metal stuff. 
And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead was weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Now, think, why in the world is all that in there? It's to point out that the Philistines had all this advanced technological warfare. Bronze, bronze, iron, iron. And he's walking out there fully clad in the latest technology and a part that didn't ever get on the flannel graph. He's got a gauge with the shield before him. And the shield is so big, uh, Goliath has weighed so much, he didn't have to carry it himself. He's got too much else he's carrying. This guy carries the shield in front of him. Next verse. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine or are you not the servants of Saul? He says, listen, aren't we supposed to be fighting here? Why are you not coming out? Let's do this. Instead of all of us fighting, choose one man from among yourselves. Let him come down to me. Is he able to fight with me and kill me? Then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now here's the deal. Back in that day, they would have this thing called representative warfare. One man versus one man theoretically was to stop the bloodshed of hundreds or thousands. They'll say, we'll send out our best, you send out your best, whoever wins, one-on-one, that side wins. And the Philistines liked that because they had Goliath. And so he strolls out there. And it tells us in the next verse that we're going to have up on the screen, it says, the Phil- every day, morning and night, he would come out and say, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And so for 40 days, he would walk out at the morning at breakfast. The sun is risen. Everybody's over there. And he would yell, give me a man one on one. We'll fight to the death. And whoever wins, that side wins. And then every night when the sun was about to go down, he said, another day has passed and another day without a man coming. Send me a man. And the next morning, the same thing. And the next evening, the same thing. There were ample opportunities for the people of God to respond. And yet when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, who should have been the one that responded to the call? Saul. Saul was king, but not only that, it tells us in Scripture he was king, and he was chosen king primarily because he was bigger and stronger than everybody else. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And you, have you ever had anything in your life that it just never seems to go away? I mean, you don't know what to do about it. You know how to get over it. You know how to get around it. You know how to get through it. And all it does is every day you're faced with the reality of what it is and you find yourself dismayed and greatly afraid. Meanwhile, split screen, back at the camp, back at the ranch. David's out there hanging out with his dad. David apparently wasn't old enough to go to war yet, which meant in Israel at that time, when you were 20, you went to war. So David was a teenager. David's a teenager. He's back at home. He's hanging out with his dad, and his dad says, man, I've got an errand. I need you to run for me. I need you to take some Lunchables up to the boys. They're getting hungry. We need to take this to them, all right? And so David, it tells us in Scripture, verse 20, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. He is a responsible young man. He got a sheep sitter. To take care of the sheep while he goes. And he took the provisions, the Lunchables, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the hosts were going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So uh, here's what you have to understand. As as he gets to camp, he gets there early enough that as he gets there, they're all lining up. Israel's lining up on one side of this mountain. They're facing the Philistines, and they're declaring a war cry. Now, uh, here's what I don't understand. For 40 days, you've been challenged. And you haven't done anything about it. What are you yelling at them? Right? We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? Like, what are you yelling? The other side goes, we got Goliath. Good point. We'll go back to our camp now. Thank you. Right? 
I mean, what is it? It's 40 days. What are you yelling at them? As Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. I guess they go out every day going, oh, this is the day Goliath chickens out. He's not coming. Oh, there's Goliath. Well, good to see y'all this morning. We'll see y'all tonight. We'll be back. All right. So he gets there. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle. He, as he talked with them, as David's talking with these guys, like, what's going on, guys? Why? What? <laughs> You're just standing here. What's going on? Yeah, this is what, this is the classic example of a, a boy. You know, can you imagine David wants this, David's heart? He wants to be in the battle, right? I mean, he's probably fifteen, sixteen years old. He wants to be in the battle. Big brothers get to go do all this stuff. He doesn't get to do it at all. And then his dad goes, "Hey, David, I need you to run something to the camp." And David's like, "When? Where? How? Let's go! Come on!" Because I want to see the battle. And he wants to run over there. And he's expecting to see all the battle happen. He gets there. And they're talking to each other across. Like, what, what's going on? What, what are you talking about? And behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. David's like, oh, this, this guy. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, you know, they're out there with the rah-rah, this is us, war chant. They saw him. He hadn't even started talking yet. They fled from him and were much afraid. So you got the scene, right? He comes out and he says, what, what's going on? What, what, why are y'all not doing anything? And then the guy, Goliath, comes out. And as Goliath comes out to speak, David sees the rest of the army retreat. Verse 26 tells us this. And David said to the men who stood by him, What do you get if you kill the Philistine?" And removes the, the reproach, removes the stain from Israel. What, what, is, what does Saul promise the guy that kills him? And then he asks a second question. <laughs> For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Man, David's a spitfire, amen? I love it. What, what do you, hey, first question. <laughs> what do you get if you win? Second question, uh, why are you letting him talk like that? Now, the second question is the most important. We'll get there in a minute. But the first question is important because it just shows you how scared these guys were. Because this is what you got. It tells us in the scripture. This is what you got if you defeated Goliath. A, you got lots of money. B, you were given the most coveted bachelorette in the country. Saul's daughter, Michael. C, you never and your family never had to pay taxes ever again. Now, it's tax season. And that's a pretty strong incentive. Amen? Like, never again. And so he says to them, hey, what, what do you get for this? And they're like, man, he's, what he said is what you get. You, you get lots of money. And you get Michael, the king's daughter, as your wife. And you get... No taxes for you or your family. You're free completely in Israel. But uh, here's the thing, David. Um, none of that's good if you're dead. I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but when you're dead, you don't have to pay taxes anyways. And it's not really a big deal to have a wife when you're dead. And the money does you no good when you're dead. Remember, nobody's going to fight, not because the reward's too small, but because you'd be dead. And David's like, no, 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 you wouldn't. In David's mind, he's like, you wouldn't be dead because God has already told us you wouldn't be dead. God's already promised victory to us. Why have you not believed that promise? Then look what happens in verse 28. Now, Eliab, that's his oldest brother, right? David had brothers with some really cool names. Guys like Eliab and Shamu and, um, I mean, names that you would want to name your kids as you're thinking about kids or grandkids names, all right? Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you even come here? And with whom have you left those sheep? <laughs> you know what that says is? You're too young to be out here. Where are your sheep? Go take care of the sheep. Get back to the house and do what you're supposed to do. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see 
the battle. Now, here's the thing. We can get over the fact that just a chapter before this, David is anointed as king, even though Eliab looked like the king. And so he's probably still a little bitter about the fact that David has been anointed at such a young age and would eventually become king. And Eliab's not real excited about the youngest brother taking a position of prominence over him, as most oldest brothers would not be excited about the youngest brother taking prominence over them. But here's one thing that you have to understand. Oftentimes, the most discouraging opposition to the plans of God comes from people that ought to know better. The cowardly people of God are the biggest obstacles to the mission of God. And when the people of God thwart the plans of God because they don't believe in the promises of God, it is a sad situation. But Eliab is thwarting the plans of God. Now let me ask you a question, all right? Just as a little aside, this isn't really part of the, the, the big picture of today, but just a little aside. What do you think bothered God most? Goliath spewing out blasphemous claims or Israel's blasphemous refusal to trust in the promises of God? What do you think bothered God more? A pagan saying bad things about him or his own people refusing to do what he's asked them to do? I mean, I think I know. What happens here is Eliab says, no, 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 David, David, you just came down here to see the carnage. You're not really a part of this. You need to go back home and quit spouting off stuff that you know nothing about. David says to him, what what did I say? Did I I just repeat? Basically, the way this comes across in the original is, didn't I just say what is true? And then he turns to others, probably his other brothers, people like I mentioned, Shamu or Abinadab, and says, uh, spoken the same way, I'm just preaching the truth. And everyone keeps telling David he's crazy. Everyone keeps saying, David, you can't do it. David, you're too small. David, you're too young. David, this isn't your fight. Go back home to the sheep. And David does the most spiritual thing he can do at that moment. He sticks his fingers in his ears and says, no, 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 no. I'm not hearing you. And can I tell you that there are times in your life when the naysayers are going to attempt to divert you from doing the courageous thing that God has called you to do, and the best thing you can do in that moment is to put your fingers in your ears and say, no, 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 no. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is when Nehemiah rebuilds the wall, and he's getting ready to rebuild the wall, and these naysayers come up, and they say, hey, we need to, we need to talk to you for a minute. Um, we just need to have a conversation with you. Nehemiah, knowing what's in their heart, was to get him down and kill him to stop the work from happening, says, I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work. And it says in the Scriptures, just one of those things that kind of is there, it says, five times he said to them, I am doing a good work. I cannot come down. And that's what happens here. No, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm not listening. Sometimes you have to stop up your ears in the name of Jesus to prevent people from convincing you that you're crazy when all you simply are is being obedient. I want people around me that believe in the size of my God, not the size of the giants in my life. And that's what David believed. Look what it says as it goes on. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. It's like... It's ridiculous that everybody in this place is scared of that guy. I will go and fight this Philistine. So David said, quit, let everybody be scared. I'll go take care of this problem for you, Saul, and then we can move on. And Saul said to David, you can just hear the sarcasm and the condescension in his voice. You, you, you're not able to go fight this Philistine. You're youth. He's been a man of war from when he was young. When he was a boy, he's bigger than you are now. He's much bigger than you are now. There's no way you can fight this. David says, <laughs> David says, well, you, you don't know much about me. But here's what I'll tell you. The, the crazy thing is, in the future, Saul's going to know a whole lot about David. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. The, my job is to be a shepherd. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock... I went after him. Now, just just stop there for a second. We just read this. When there was a lion or a bear that took a sheep from the flock, I did what? Went after him. What is your normal reaction if you're keeping sheep and a bear or a lion takes a sheep? Well, that's one down. We've got to get the rest of them taken care of, right? Now, you're not, you don't have a gun. You don't have a sword. 
You don't have anything. And look how he defeated him. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Like, <laughs> give me that back. Like, it's just a, it's a funny picture to me. Maybe it's not funny to you. It's a funny picture to me because I imagine, like, going to my dog and getting a chew toy. Or, you know, if I don't have a dog. But when I had a dog, I'd get a chew toy out. Right? He just goes, like, give me that back. In fact, he says, and if he rose against me, I just grabbed his beard, struck him and killed him. There's a lion and a bear. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of the living God. This is the cockiest teenager I've ever met in my life. Can I get an eight? You're like, no, you hadn't met my child. No, this is, right? Like, I've killed lions, I've killed bears. He's nothing. And I love what Saul says. Actually, David says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, I mean, how are you going to argue with that? All right, go. And I think this is kind of said as a prayer. May the Lord be with you. Like, this is, I'm sending you out as this. All right? So the story continues. He took his staff in his hand. Remember what they described Goliath? Like, Metal from head to toe, sword, and a shield bearer. And David picks up his staff, goes to the river, takes five stones from them. Now, if you've ever heard anybody give you what those five stones represent, they are reading too much into this story. You know what this story is about? It's about the fact that he needed one of those stones. If there's a, see, David brought the stone of prayer and a stone of faith. You know, he brought a stone from a riverbed and he just needed one. All right. So if you, you follow that illusion, like apparently you don't need the other four. You just need the one. This, he just got one. He put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, you know, Saul tried to get him his armor and it was good armor and it was the best armor in the land. And the truth is it was unused armor because Saul had never put it on. Price tag may have still been on it, but it was too big. David says, I'm OK. I got my staff and my shepherd's pouch and a piece of leather. Like, when I, when I was a kid and I heard he hit him with a slingshot, you know what I always imagine? Like, you know, like a pull slingshot, right? That's not what it is. It's just a strap of letter. You put a stone in the end of it and whirl it around and throw it. All right? And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, and for all to hear, am I a dog? That you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, here's the truth. Those gods don't exist, so that really didn't make a difference. But he's like, what are you doing? Do you not realize somebody's going to get killed today? I mean, this is the most ridiculous. This is a boy. What are you doing sending a boy? Don't you realize that the battle is over and it ain't even started? This is your champion? The Philistine said to David, come to me, boy, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. My Sunday school teachers didn't do that on the flannel graph either, right? And they definitely didn't do what David says in return. David says, you come to me (laughs) with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come in the name of of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. I see your birds of the air and raise you a severed cranium. Right? You come at me, and that will happen. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all his assembly may know that the God saves not with the sword and not with the spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. You can hear the music swelling up, right? Like Rocky's going to fly now is like coming. You want to hum that for me while I read this? No, don't do that. All right, you don't want me to do it either, right? But you know what I'm like, this is the building moment. This is it. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. (laughs) And I love this. And David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Man, when I get to heaven, the first VCR tape I'm pulling off the shelf is this. 
Can you imagine this picture? Giant full metal gear, like going forward with his shield bearer in front of him. And David running with sandals on, swinging a piece of leather. And that's it. David put his hand in his back as he's running, took a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. This is that moment, like in the Rocky movies, when you would pause it and put it on slow motion. Like, you know, when uh, Rocky finally knocks out um, Mr. T in Rocky Three, Like, and the slobber's like coming out of his mouth, right? Like, this is slow motion. The stone hits him, embeds in his head, and he falls face forward. So David prevailed over the Philistine. And that's where the flannel graph ended. But it's not where the story ends. And struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran over, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him, cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout. And pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. And the people of Israel came back from the chase of the Philistines. And they plundered their camp. And David <laughs> took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Imagine just walking along. He's got the head. Put the armor in his tent. And walked to Jerusalem with the head of the giant to say their giant is dead. Now you can imagine. Can you imagine? It tells us that as soon as David does that, they rose with a shout. Can you imagine as they're on that sideline and they're watching and you know they're sitting there talking like, what is he doing? What Did Saul send this guy out? Like, this is our representative. Oh, what are we going to do when they come here? Because they're coming here after he gets killed. And then they look out there and the giant just goes. They're like, what's happening? Right. Can you imagine the adrenaline in their lungs? As they see their champion destroy the guy that has pursued them for 40 days. Can you imagine the excitement that comes to them when they let out the shout? And before anybody can give a command, they are running down that mountain to get to the other side. And can you imagine the Philistines on the other side? Like, If their boy can do that, what are they going to do to us? I have this picture, and it's probably because I watch too many movies. Right? Of David standing with one foot on Goliath, holding his head towards the Philistines. And behind him you see the thousands of Israelites descending that place, getting ready to rise to meet the Philistines. And that's good stuff, right? Apparently not, but it is for me, all right? David takes back the trophy and heads back. Like, I'm done with my wartime, I'm done, and I'm gone. So the question is, all right, so what's the whole point of this story? I mean, why is it here? Why is it in the Bible? Is it so that we can look and go, look at that. There's always hope for the underdog. The, hard, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. If you trust God, God will give you victory over all the giants in your life. Is that what this story's primary purpose is? Well, the answer to that question is found really in who do you identify with in this story? Who do you identify with in this story? See, most of us would say, oh, I'm David. Man, I I want to be courageous. I want to fight the battles of the Lord. But the truth is, according to Scripture and according to the testimony of your own life, you're not David, you're Israel. We are the people that stand on the sidelines and cower in fear when the promises of God have already been delivered. You see, the the Old Testament stories primarily have two reasons for those of us on this side of Jesus. First of all, they point us to Jesus and to have us see him in the story. And secondly, they point us to examples of how we live. And the first thing that this story does is to show us that we are Israel and that Jesus is David. And that the giant in our life that had to be slain before any other giant could be slain is the separation that is caused by our sin between us and God. And while we stood on the sideline unwilling and unable to do anything about it, Jesus was sprinting to fight that giant. He was sprinting as hard as he could to deliver death's blow to our sin. There was nothing we could do. There was nothing we wanted to do. We kept living day after day after day after day saying, I just wish you wouldn't remind me of this. I just wish you wouldn't happen. Every morning you wake up, oh, it's going to be a different day. But without Jesus, it's all the same. Uh, I read this week a story about um, some of the tsunamis that happened over in Indonesia. 
Um, there was a group of friends, like 15 friends, that stayed uh, out on the beach, camped out on the beach the night before the, one of these big tsunamis hit. And when they got up in the morning, and I don't know if you know what tsunamis are, but they are waves, tidal waves, that crash into land after an earthquake. And what happens is, um, as these friends were there, that they were awakened in the morning, early in the morning, by a 7.0 earthquake. And what they saw was the ocean started to recede. And of the 15 friends, one of them said, I've got to go check on my mom and dad to make sure they're okay. So he hopped on his motorcycle and he drove away to his parents that were inland. The other 14 walked out into what had previously been ocean. According to what the studies have said, the ocean that day went backwards half a mile. And so they're walking on land that was previously ocean. And as they're walking out into that land, the story is told. that they were, We haven't heard from them because none of them survived. But the one who did tells that what happened is, as they were standing out there, suddenly the tsunami started. And that tsunami that day at that beach was 70 feet tall. Now imagine you're one of those guys. And you've walked out into what was previously ocean. And you're standing there and you see a seven-story wave. And it's coming at you. Now imagine for a moment that right at the moment it's about to get to you. The earth opens up and every bit of that water that was about to hit you and devour you rushes underground and not a drop of it touches you. See, Scripture says that what happened is when the tidal wave of sin was coming at us that Jesus stepped in front and took every last drop of judgment on himself. He drank it to the bottom and said, it is finished. See, the story here is Jesus running to take our sin upon himself. And because of that, the first point, we got two and then we're done. Because Jesus took out the real John in my life, I can bravely face anything lesser. I don't have to be afraid of death. If cancer calls, I don't have to be afraid of it. If death comes, Scripture says, like Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't have to be afraid of it. Sometimes I'll meet people in the hallway and I'll say, how are you doing? I'm good. You know, and uh, got up this morning. It's better than the alternative. According to Scripture, it's not. I don't have to be scared of it. Jesus conquered death for me. Because of Christ, I don't have to fear the future flying out of control. No matter what happens in presidential elections, no matter what happens to the United States of America, I don't have to worry about the future being completely out of control because He is in control. If you lose a job, if you, if you lose a spouse, if you lose family, if you lose friends, you have to understand that Christ has promised his presence with us wherever we are. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. It's interesting because David would have been running into a valley in this. And Psalm 23 is written by David. And he says, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my God is with me because of Christ. I don't have to fear the disapproval of others because the only one that matters has already approved of me. Because Jesus took out the real job in my life, I don't have to be scared about the things here. I can bravely face them. And courage comes not from welling it up inside of me, but it comes from knowing that Christ has already paid the price for my sin. And then the second thing is, in this story, he gives us a pattern for how we too will overcome the giants that we face. Old Testament stories, they point us to Jesus and then they give us a glimpse of how to live. They tell us to worship and then go. And in our lives, a giant is anything that prohibits the kingdom of God from going forward in our lives. And the way we overcome those is we remember the goodness of God and his promises. We live confidently believing in God's promises and his goodness. My kids' salvation are big giants to me. And I, I pray daily for my kids to come to know Christ. I think that makes that really concerning is I don't have any control over that. I can't do it for them. If I could, I already would have. But I can't. And then from the moment I found out I was going to be a dad until this moment, I have prayed about that and could easily worry about that. About how they're going to turn out and what God's going to do in their lives. And man, I wish I could save them from 
the bad mistakes that I've made and the decisions that I've done. Prayed about that. But here's what I know. I, I can't control all that. I can't determine all that for them. But I can trust in the goodness of God and His promises. And I continually can go to Him for wisdom about how to raise them to a point where they will understand who He is. I mean, none of us are assured of financial kind of security going forward or most of us in this room are. Maybe you have security in the bank and you're fine, but most of us, you know, if something bad happened tomorrow in six months to a year, we're in bad shape, if, if not much sooner than that. And you just think, man, if you could let that kind of rack your brain. But here's the truth. I believe in God's goodness and His promises. He's not going to let me get to the place where He is ever going to forsake me. There's some of you in this room that have tried to break a sinful habit over and over and over again. You don't have the courage to kind of do it, but... We trust in His goodness and His promises to help us through those moments. I mean, here's the thing. If we are believing in the promises of God for the spread of His kingdom, He has promised us His presence and His power and to be part of our lives. Just as He did David. So if you're here and you're a teenager, man, we need people that are teenagers that are champions for Christ. Not later, not when they get to college, not when they get to being young adults. Now. One of the neediest mission fields in America are public middle school and high schools. If you look at all the statistics, the biggest percentage of unreached Americans are in high school and middle school right now. Kids, we need you to be missionaries there. Y'all got an event coming up this weekend. You need to be praying for our kids as Glow's coming up. That they'll invite friends this week. They go back to Everybody's back in school this week. Invite them to come. Moms and dads, you're going to have to be strong and courageous in leading your families to trust in the Lord and not listen to all the things that are outside that your kid has to be involved in every sport and every academic activity and every extracurricular activity because true success comes from making sure they are the best possible high school students they can be. Here's the truth, parents. Our goal is to lead our people, to our children, to becoming more like Christ. That has to be our priority. Businessmen, seeing God's provision when you take a stand for integrity, when you step out to tell someone about Christ, when you decide to give to the church and to funds that don't necessarily fit your financial profile manager's request. Those of you that are retired, David's a teenager here, but in Scripture it tells us about men that are into their 80s, that are pursuing the passions of God. Here's the point for all of us and for David. Don't settle for mediocrity, but trust in the promises of God. The size of the giant is not the problem in your life. The smallness of our confidence in God is the real problem. And over the next few weeks, as we talk about these particular issues, every one of them is going back to this. Are you more concerned about the size of the problem or are you more concerned about the size of your God? And as we walk through them, my prayer is that God will set you free from some worries and concerns that keep you up at night. Let's pray together.